Age of Radio. Hello. If you're hearing my voice right now, then you have stumbled onto the podcast where real stories of professional criminal profilers are told by professional assholes. Welcome to Profiling Pain. the fuck is going on co-filers i am back my hiatus is over i apologize for the long wait if you weren't aware of what happened in the last episode go and listen to it because that's a lot of information to re you know to go back over uh pretty much we're talking about a civil rights leader that became a crazy priest well not priest pastor uh sold monkeys and a bunch of other weird shit we covered his childhood covered his marriage blah 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 blah, blah. and where we last left off he was on his way to guiana but before we get to the rest of Jim Jones, which I'm sure, seeing as how it's 2021, everybody knows the story. We've already talked about how the terminology is in the zeitgeist of him drinking the or saying, you know, drink the Kool-Aid, blah, 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 all that other shit. We're going to get into what actually happened in Guyana. It's not quite the long, drawn-out story that you're expecting it to be. It, it was very short-lived. Um, outside of that, we're going to talk about Travis Scott and that whole concert thing that happened. Um, and then we're going to dabble a little bit into the Satanic Panic on this episode. Uh, there's going to be a lot of references to the Satanic Panic coming up. And we're also going to cover some black metal shit uh, in the next couple episodes. Uh, either the next one or the one after. We're, we're going to get into some black metal bands like fucking Mayhem. And, and there's going to be a whole lot of going on. Um, what else? What else? What else? What else? Let's see. It's been about four months since my last episode. So... Uh, I have been getting a lot of emails. <laughs> I've been getting a lot of uh, people I personally know being like, hey, dude, what the fuck? Like, we're waiting. Like, where, where is it at? Uh, Brian Laughlin has been on my ass almost daily. So that's another shout out to him. If you remember exactly, the last time I talked about Brian Laughlin, the lead singer of Stubborn Old Bastard, and he was also in uh, Gridlocked. I mean, look him up on YouTube. Look him up on Spotify. Um He's got some cool shit out there. But we, when we did the uh, Richard Ramirez episode, uh, he was my um, my muse <laughs> for that episode, for lack of a better term. Uh, I do apologize for the hiatus. Shit's been crazy. Um, I mean, fuck, it seems like every time I talk on this goddamn podcast, there's always something else going on. and something preventing me from doing it. Most of it this time around has been my own, uh, uh, I guess, just fucking laziness. I mean, honestly, the shit's, I mean, it's just normal everyday horseshit but it there's a lot of things distracting me and not giving me quite the time that i wanted to put towards this and i didn't get quite as much research as i typically do sorry for the weird little noises right now i'm adjusting the mic all right um but anyway yeah so we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna talk about uh the satanic panic and the origin of that shit and where travis scott now falls into play with it so if you guys don't know, The Satanic Panic kind of was brought on by a book that was written, I think, in the 70s. And then, I mean, it, it, we're going to talk about the West Memphis Three on, on a future episode. And pretty much what it is, it's like the entire world became anti-Goth kids, I guess, essentially. Um, and there, it's kind of, if, if you really are interested in it, go and, and just look it up and just look at all the different cases. There, there's been a lot of court cases. I mean, it's almost like a reincarnation of the Salem Witch Trials here in America. I mean, it, that's exact, essentially what it became. Um, 
Nobody got burnt, but there was a couple guys that did prison time for something that they didn't do. And we're not talking like a few months. Like we're talking decades of prison time um, stories, even about like sacrificing of virgins. I mean, you've heard it all. If you've ever like looked up any conspiracy theory on Freemasons or the Illuminati, you've, you've heard all this bullshit before anyway. You know, unborn children being ripped out of, you know, fucking sacrificial people's bodies and rituals and blah, 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 and slitting a cat's throat. And I mean, it's, it's, uh, what the fuck? fuck was that movie called uh drag me to hell shit like that pretty much but without the gypsies um but anyway let's get into it. let's talk about the satanic panic so i actually got this from vox uh not fox but with a v vox all right oh i did want to talk about kyle rittenhouse so um he won his case i mean that's it that's all nothing we can i mean no matter how you view it should he have been there with that gun probably not but he was, um, and then did our judicial system uh, sway in his favor? It did, uh, and that's that's it, that's all. I really don't want to hear any more about it, honestly. I'm glad the whole fucking thing is over. Um, no matter where your beliefs stand, uh, the Second Amendment, you know, still stands, and that's why he had so much support. If there's, if there's, nobody gives a shit about that kid, I'm telling you right now, honestly. Like, not a fucking person who was supporting that case actually gave two fucks about whether or not his parents had him for Christmas. You know what I mean? Uh, the whole premise of it was to protect the Second Amendment, which is very important whether you realize it or not. I actually had somebody tell me just a few weeks ago that if you go far enough left, you get your guns back. I don't know what the fuck that means, but uh, it, it is important. I always talk about my brother-in-law's uh, gun store, Abide Armory, and I'm, I'm keep pushing that. So go to AbideArmory.com. But moving on. Um, so this uh, story I got from Vox... V-O-X, uh, or Vox, I mean, that's kind of how we abbreviate vocals when we were recording, but uh, Vox, Vox, Vix, Vix, who gives a shit? Uh, the, the headline of this article is called, Why the Satanic Panic Never Really Ended, all right? So it's the collective fears that consumed the U.S. in the 1980s and 90s and are still alive and well all the way through QAnon and beyond. And we talked about uh, QAnon and how that shit's kind of been there uh, quite a few episodes ago. I, th- I believe we talked about QAnon during our Frank Sinatra episode. So, uh, here we go. One of the most famous prolonged mass media scares in history, the Satanic Panic, was characterized at its peak by fearful media depictions of godless teenagers and the deviant music and media they consumed. Uh, This, in turn, led to a number of high-profile criminal cases that were heavily influenced by all the social hysteria. Most people associate the Satanic Panic with so-called Satanic ritual abuse, a rash of false allegations made against daycare centers in the 1980s, and with uh, the case of the West Memphis Three, which I've already mentioned in the 90s, in which three teenagers whose wrongful conviction on homicide charges was uh, based on little more than sub... How do I, how do I put this? Uh, pretty much just because they were goth kids. There's only three goth kids in a small fucking town. I mean, that's essentially why. Um, at their core, satanic ritual abuse claims... Uh, relied on overzealous law enforcement, unsubstantiated statements from children, and above all, uh, coercive and suggestive interrogation by therapists and prosecutors. Some of the defendants are still serving life sentences for crimes they probably didn't even fucking commit, and which likely didn't happen in the first place. As for the West Memphis Three, they were eventually released. We're going to talk about that later. I don't even want to talk about blah, 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 blah. We're going to move past that. So... Was the subsequent outrage from those who accused Lil Nas X of being a corrupting influence just a case of a failure to read art? 
metaphorically, perhaps, but a look at this bizarre period in U.S. history offers another possible explanation. Satanic panic never truly went away. It's alive and well today, and its legacy threads through American culture and politics and everything from social media, moralizing, to QAnon. Okay? So, the rise of occultism, Satanism, and evangelical fear began in the 1970s with the Satanic Bible written by Anton Sandler LaVey. So everybody knows Anton LaVey, right? The head of the Satanic Church. Okay, so the, the Satanic Bible was published in 1969, right? So a number of factors contributed to the increased interest in and fear of the occult during the late 60s and 70s. The Manson Colts operation in the late 60s uh, culminated in a string of murders in the summer of 1969. And we're going to cover Manson, too. I'm not leaving that out. And my biggest thing is I'm trying to figure out whether I want to do it as a music episode or as just a regular profiling pain episode because... Uh, he was actually a pretty good uh, musician, pretty good artist. Um, it shocked the nation and put organized ritualistic killings on the brain. That same year, um, organist turned occultist Anton LaVey published his philosophical uh, treatise, The Satanic Bible, which uh, plagiarized several sources and mostly uh, regurgitated earlier philosophies of self-actualization um, and self-empowerment. If you ever read The Satanic Bible, it's actually like, pretty positive message honestly um they said that the satanic church believes in treating women better way better than the regular christian church does um it's pretty much how that golden rule you know what i mean do unto others as you would have done unto you um it's it's actually god i hate to say it. i'm not very religious so i, I can look at it from a non-biased stance um but i mean wherever your moral compass takes you you know whatever you need to stay on the straight and narrow. Stay on the straight and narrow. That's all that matters, really. You know what I mean? Don't rape, murder, kill, fucking steal, uh, whatever. You know what I mean? Anyway, so nevertheless, it became the uh, seminal work of modern Satanism and the key text of the Church of Satan, a group LeVay had officially founded in 1966. So accompanying the rise of Satanism as a recognized practice was the 1971 uh, republication of William Peter Blatt, Blattis, 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 I'm going to say Blattis, uh, best-selling novel, The Exorcist, and its blockbuster 1973 film adaptation. So, I don't know if you've ever seen The Exorcist, but that shit put people in the hospital. Fucking anxiety attacks, the whole fucking thing. And certainly, I don't know if you read the book. If you read the book, it's pretty good. And I actually saw a pretty funny story the other day where uh, a guy was saying his mom bought The Exorcist book, was reading it, and it got so scary and so evil that she actually took it and threw it in the ocean. So he bought another copy, ran it under the sink, and then put it in her nightstand drawer just to scare the fucking shit out of her. <laughs> uh, so anyway, with its claims of being based on a true story, The Exorcist profoundly impacted America's collective psyche uh, regarding the existence of demons and single-handedly transformed the popular Ouija board from a fun, harmless parlor game into a, male a malevolent device capable of inducing spirit possession, demonic infestation, and other paranormal normal activity and think about the movies paranormal activity think about uh what the fuck man it's it's like running it's it's leaving my mind right now but all the uh the conjurings what's that couple i don't remember that couple's name but you know when they did like the doll thing and the whole demon the, the demon hunter people whatever think about how like much that has been in pop culture the last few years like i've seen probably every conjuring movie i'm really surprised i can't remember their fucking names right now uh anywho so a fabricated memoir ultimately uh, discredited after 20 years by self-proclaimed Christian evangelist Mark War Mike Warnke. Uh, Satan seller renounced a childhood and young adulthood that Warnke claimed were spent in intense satanic worship. Now, Warnke was a Christian comedian slash uh, 
knower of all occult and evil, all based off of shit that he just fucking made up. Like, you're going to have to go research uh, Mike Warnke. I'm never going to do an episode on Mike Warnke um, because it's been done, like, a lot. I mean, everything that I do has been done. I know that. But um, Mike Warnke doesn't really fall under my wheelhouse. So you're going to have to go check him out. I would suggest probably listen to, like, last podcast on the left, Mike Warnke. They did a really, really good uh, uh, episode on him. Anyway, so pretty much what his whole deal was, he lied about being a Satanist, having over 1,500 followers, the whole thing, the whole ripping babies out of people's bodies, the fucking, I mean, and this whole time he was strung out on heroin, and then he became a battle, you know, a, a fighter for God, and, and it became like one of the, like, oh, no, you know, the Christians, like, gave him his own fucking station, like I said, he was a stand-up comedian, some of his shit was pretty funny, some of his shit was, he would end with, like, an hour rant on how he was a Satanist, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, Anyway, so pretty much everybody around this time of Mike Warnke and another chick, I can't remember her name, they, they pretty much all claim to have conversion experiences that made their stories appealing to Christians. Is that like they were the evilest of evil, but then converted to Christianity, and which gave, you know, unfortunately, all Christians hope. But if you've ever read the Bible, the motherfuckers are acting like the golden calf, you know, I'm sizzling. Uh, so anyway, all of them were linked to the emerging fundamentalist Christian right, uh, who used fabricated claims as the basis for numerous comic-style pamphlets protesting against Satanism. Uh, Warnke spent over a decade posing as an expert in Satanism. We already covered all that shit. I mean, the growing fascination with the occult also coincided with a number of extremely well-publicized serial killer cases that took place in the 1970s. And as we know, a lot of our shit has taken place in the 70s. Now, I haven't covered the Zodiac Killer, but Zodiac Killer, Alphabet Murders, uh, we talked about that, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, who we'll get to, the Hillside Stranglers, and David Berkowitz, uh, a.k.a. the Son of Sam. Um, so many of these well-publicized serial killers maintain an image of having the upper hand in some way. So the Zodiac Killer and Berkowitz wrote uh, taunting letters to the press and police. Bundy escaped from prison and immediately resumed his horrifying killing spree. Gacy hid his evil under the most ben just, I mean, craziest of disguises. Um, a friendly clown who performed for children. I mean, uh, and as the brazen anarchy associated with these kinds of high-profile killings grew, so did public fear. And a 2005 book about that fateful New York summer... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. Author Jonathan Maller writes of the impact that Son of Sam had on the media. Blah, 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 blah. 1980s were defined by stranger danger and a growing fear of your own neighborhood. So anyway, serial killers mixed with lies and different stories put out and Anton LaVey. I mean, all these things kind of culminate into one thing. And now we have stories like we were just discussing it at work the other day. Jesus Christ. Fucking Comet Pizza, right? Pizzagate, Adrenochrome, torturing children so that their utmost peak of, of, of adrenaline is hitting and then harvesting their blood for, for youth or power or gain or whatever the fuck. I mean, it's still in the media. It's still in in the dark corners of the regular internet. You can Google Adrenochrome. It'll tell you the whole fucking story. And supposedly it's Hillary Clinton and Kim Kardashian and all the elites. Like, it's still there. It still exists, and it still has a satanic back. And everybody proclaims that it's a battle of good versus evil. Well, I mean, everything I guess technically would be a battle of good versus evil, but it's it's a little far-fetched for me to believe just like these guys got busted for lying and it being debunked and all the other shit i think all this adrenochrome shit i mean i'm not saying that there's not elites touching kids 100 fucking percent like i think that you get a certain level of money in your bank account and then you're like i guess it's cool to fuck kids now because that's just the way it seems so so there's no doubt in my mind that that shit actually happens but anyway 
So we're going to move on to the Travis Scott concert. Now, the only reason I'm bringing up Travis Scott is because there's a lot of people that said that his concert was a ritual, um, that the same number of victims that there were, there was that number of flames shooting from the stage, there were so many different satanic symbols, the stage, the way the stage was set up. And I think it was just a very... Well, I'll tell you what I think at the end of this. But So here we go. This is actually from the Daily Beast. So... For months, Houston officials uh, fretted about potential hazards of Astroworld, a packed music festival that ended in eight casualties last week. When, Well, I mean, longer than last week. I've had this article for a while. I've been wanting to do this episode. But we all know it was a few weeks ago. Okay, and eight casualties last week, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know what I mean. Uh, were crushed to death. Uh, Zerber has raised alarms about lack of exits, insufficient secu- uh, security, and a packed, enthusiastic crowd. And if you've seen the videos online, like, that was packed, like, to the max. Um, and maybe, maybe it wasn't packed any more than usual and we're just not used to concerts over the last couple of years because of COVID or maybe that shit was actually packed. It looked, I mean, I've been to a lot of concerts. I've, I've been to concerts where they, they did the wall of death. And for those of you who don't listen to metal and don't know what the wall of death is, it is exactly how it sounds. It is a wall of fucking death. What they do is they have, uh, whoever the artist is, they'll be like, all right, motherfuckers, are you ready? And they have you separate into two groups, and there's just a split. It's like Moses came and split the fucking crowd, and then they're like, one, two, three, and then when they count to three, everybody just runs and bum rushes each other in the center, and it's like, it's like watching old war movies, and it's pretty goddamn fun, but you don't want to be caught in the middle. Um, and so, but this I don't even think that they would have had the space to even try a wall of death at this concert. It was pretty fucking packed. It was crazy. Um, so, but outside official investigations, a bizarre theory about the deadly concert going tracted, uh, traction this weekend. Uh, anyone else notice that the stage is an inverted cross leading to a portal to hell? Asked one TikTok video. And I got a few friends that I talked to who get a lot of their news and a lot of their conspiracy theory from TikTok. But if you're going to sit there... And in the same breath, be like, oh, China's trying to do this, and I fucking hate China. And then get all of your news and all of your conspiracy theory and all what you believe to be true off of a platform that was designed and sold to us by China. I, I just can't take anything as valid. So the mass casualty event, Astroworld, has become a magnet for satanic panic-style conspiracy theories. Uh, those theories have flourished among young people on sites like TikTok, as we discussed, as well as with a more established conspiracy scene like believers of the QAnon movement. Uh, the result is a coalition of clout chasers and far-right influencers meeting to falsely accuse rapper Travis Scott of deliberately killing people in a satanic ritual. Uh, Scott, who headlined and organized the recurring, or sorry, the recurring uh, Astroworld Festival, has pledged cooperation with investigators. Uh, my prayers go out to the families and all those impacted by what happened at Astroworld Festival. Houston PD has my total support as it continues to look into the tragic loss of life, Scott said in a statement this weekend, adding that he was absolutely devastated by what took place last night. Um, and he's done multiple interviews, and it's 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 pretty sad. Um, so Scott's involvement in the tragedy is drawn. Scrutiny had already become the subject of a lawsuit. Uh, prior to the festival, Houston's police chief uh, personally visited Scott to warn him of the potential for rowdy crowds comprised largely of enthusiastic young fans who had missed concerts during COVID-19. So now, I mean, it's true. Like, the next time I get a chance to play a show, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. Uh, other emergency preparation documents stress the need for many exits to the venue. Many, many exits to the venue. 
something concertgoers said never materialized. When fans converged in a stampede-like crush during Scott's performance, he was seen pausing, asking the crowd to calm down, proceeding with his performance, even after an ambulance entered the audience. Uh... So footage of Scott's performance has been used to support a far-right movement that is already deeply embroiled in satanic panic conspiracy theories like QAnon, which falsely accuses Donald Trump's foes of participating in a satanic pedophilia and cannibalism ring, which we have already discussed. So some invoked astrology popular among young people to support their claims because the tragedy took place during Scorpio season. Uh, Travis Scott did a sacrifice, tweeted the head of a white supremacist website, adding that one of Scott's album covers featured depravity, i.e. scantily clad women. Uh, Daily Wire podcaster Matt Walsh tweeted that Scott was a satanic weirdo who encouraged crowds to get violent. Um, So far-right fixation on supposed Satanism is nothing new, especially when it comes to music and art. The satanic panic of the 1980s and 90s, like we said, led to overheated fears about children being indoctrinated into satanic cults via heavy metal, music, and games like Dungeons & Dragons, which I played yesterday. I'm a motherfucking nerd and happy about it. Uh, I did. We played about four and a half, five hours of Dungeons & Dragons. Fuck off. It's fun. Uh, some of these themes have reemerged in the QAnon conspiracy theory as well as in fights over the arts across the country. In Idaho this spring, an aspiring library board member unseated the incumbent candidate by running on a campaign to purge certain satanic books on race and gender from the library's children's section. I don't think the public libraries need to be an extension of scriptural knowledge only. Um, she wrote on her campaign site, but they sure shouldn't be forcing taxpayer funding of satanic agendas that lead to the destruction of our nation. With a far-right audience ready to promote Satanism conspiracy theories and a young musical audience looking for answers about Astroworld, it hasn't taken long for both communities to meet. Uh, multiple viral tweets and TikTok videos have called attention to what they claim are signs of satanic rituals in Scott's performance, including flames in a circle on stage, which people claim could be used for summoning demons. Some invoked astrology popular among young people to support their claims because the tragedy took place during Scorpio season, which come, or which some theorists said sounds like the word corpse. Others po- uh, posted that the concert opened a portal to hell. A screenshot of a Reddit post now going viral on Twitter supports... Uh, purports to be from a Travis Scott concert goer whose experience led them to believe that Travis Scott is a demon sent from hell. Uh, the actual post is from 2017, and the Redditor describes themselves as tripping absolute nutsack at the concert in question. <laughs> so, you know, other Redditors chimed in with similar experiences at the time. My dad tripped at a dead show in the 80s and swears he saw the devil crawl out of the bass drum and start yelling at him. Uh, one wrote with another adding that they took hallucinogens at a Chance the Rapper concert and believed that Chance was a literal god. Uh, those all sound really badass. I'm actually going to share with you something that I, I experienced at a Fall Out Boy concert. I know. I'm always like, oh, metal, 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 metal. But fuck you. Fall Out Boy's all right. So anyway, um, so the first group that went on was some no-name band. And then the second group was uh, Paramore, who's kind of like my guilty pleasure. And then Fall Out Boy came on. Now, Fall Out Boy had actually, and this at the time, this is 2000, fuck, man, 2011 maybe. And I was I was balls deep in conspiracy theory. Like everything about the satanic panic, all, all this horse shit, I was, I mean, I was sitting there looked, Googling uh, 
maps of DC. Like, oh my God, there's three streets coming off the White House, and each street has six fucking streets on it. Six, six, six. And if you zoom out and you look at it just right, it makes the upside down Rams head. Like, I was losing my fucking mind. Like, 100% losing my mind. I was watching YouTube videos like the Illuminati ritual behind the 2009 VMAs and Kanye West, you know, fucking chastising or ripping the award out of out of Taylor Swift's hand while she's in a white dress and her showing back up wearing red and Beyonce accepts her in like she's a member of the Illuminati like losing my fucking mind dude um but what I saw with my own two eyes look at me into my eyeball what I saw with my own eyes was Fall Out Boy had changed their little symbol and it was uh three crowns right and I'm sitting there going that's got to be something you know and then the letters inside the on the front of the drum skin is where most bands put their band symbol and the letters didn't make out Fallout Boy. You know, it wasn't F-O-B um, on, on on the crowns. It was something else. And then they started playing this song where it's like, you know, this ain't a scene. It's a goddamn arms race. And once they started playing that, they had a bunch of TVs on the screen. And these TVs had formed a pyramid. And it was showing the Pyramid of Giza. And then it would switch to the, uh, the, the, the pyramid on the back of the dollar bill with the all-seeing eye. All that jazz. Um... And then as the pyramid started to rise and show the, the, the pyramid of Giza with the all-seeing eye on the back of the dollar bill, every time they said, God damn, like there would be like flames shooting up, boom, boom, from, uh, from the stage. And already I'm like, hmm, that's cool. It's putting emphasis on the word. But, you know, I, the, the pyramid and all that other shit, if you know anything about, you know, masonry, you're like, oh, my God, it's a monolith. And you start losing your fucking mind, plus the reference to the dollar bill. And then, da, da, da. And then after that song was done, all of a sudden the stage goes black. And then uh, the lead singer and the drummer both come out of the stage like they had like a cool little platform thing. And they come out and then they're doing a Rain of Blood by uh, 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 Slayer. So if you don't know how that song goes, it's like... It's a really cool song, but they were having a drum battle with it, right? And then right after that, they did like some weird Elton John cover with a fucking piano on top of the little stage thing that they had with the, with the TVs. Because the TVs came down and formed like a platform. Then, for about a minute 45, because I counted, stage goes black again. Boom! There's a light center of that little platform, and there's a, uh, it looks like a plague doctor's mask, and then just a long black rope, and he's got his arms spread wide open, and he's like looking down at the crowd. For a minute 45, not a word was said, not a fucking light show happened, nothing. It was just this thing with this mask looking down at people, and then it goes away. And then all of a sudden they're doing like sugar, we're going down for the next song, like something really sugary and poppy. And no one noticed. Meanwhile, I'm like, fucking what the fuck? Like, I mean, I, I heard my butthole pucker, you know what I mean? Like, I was like, did anybody else fucking see that shit? And everybody thought I was fucking crazy because I was making a big deal about it. Like, oh, it's just a show. But I was like, that means something. To this day, I still have no idea what the fuck it means. But that's that's my biggest experience from a concert where I thought something was a little off. And I mean, I've been to like five Ozfests. I've been to Lamb of God. I've been to all their. I mean, I've been to all these. I mean, I got to see Suicidal Tendencies and all their mains and uh, Deftones and fuck. Like I've been to a million and one shows, and it was a fucking Fallout Boy concert. I'm like, does anybody else see this shit? So I don't know if it's just I took it weird or if they were trying to be more metal because it was a live performance. I don't know what it was. I don't. I don't. I don't know what that shit was. But what I do know is I thought it was crazy. And after reading all these like Reddit posts or anything else about other concerts and stuff, shit like that, and then even reading the Travis Scott article and what some people say that they see with uh, Little Nas X, who my theory on Little Nas X is I think he's just playing it up. I think that people are like, oh, he's gay and he's doing, you know what I mean? And I think he's like, all right, motherfuckers, like, you know, give me shit, watch this. And he just, he bought in. I think he just bought in. I don't think he actually believes in any of this 
devil fucking horse shit. I think he just he's buying in and he's he's hitting it hard. He's like, all right, fucking fuck around, find out, watch then. And that's kind of been his attitude his entire career. And honestly, I respect him for it. You know what I mean? Like that's do you, man? That's awesome. Like that's fucking way awesome. You found a crazy ass way to get more fans. Fuck yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, and that's that's what it is. In my opinion. And with the whole Travis Scott thing, I think it was just bad preparation. I don't know how much power everybody thinks that Travis Scott has in planning the show. I, don't, I personally don't know either. But I I would assume, I would assume you have to get, like, permits. And, I mean, everything has to be under code. Like, I think maybe it was a venue mistake, not necessarily his mistake. And when you're up there and lights are hitting, you can't always see exactly what's going on, man. Like, shit gets crazy. You know, so I don't know. But moving on. So we're going to get into Jim Jones. Um, and we're going to finish out this Jim Jones story. And this, this, part, this, this part of the story is very tragic, and it's all about uh, what happened once they got to Guyana. So if you remember, there was some tax evasion, some stories of molestation. There was a bunch of crazy shit with his name popping up. Uh, Jim Jones, that is. And all of a sudden, you know, the little piece of, of, of South America that they had been visiting and doing whatever. And now they're there. And they got about a thousand people total there almost. So let's get into that. So Jonestown is finally established. All right. So many of the People's Temple members believe that Guiana would be, as Jones promised, a paradise. But instead, uh, most of Jonestown's residents, including children, ended up raising food and animals for the People's Temple Agricultural Project, which is what that was called, if you remember from the last episode, it was called the People's Temple Agricultural Project, okay, before it was called Jonestown. Um, the work was performed six days a week from 7 in the morning to 6 in the evening with temperatures that often reached over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which if you're listening abroad, that is 38 degrees Celsius. Look at me, I helped you out. Uh, so that, and that's, that's, you know, really, really close to the equator, so it's, it's humid, it's hot, you know, and it's South America. When you think South America, I think rainforest. So I don't know exactly what the terrain was, but that's kind of what I'm picturing in my head. So according to some, meals for the members consisted of nothing more than rice and beans, while Jones dined on eggs, meat, and soft drinks from a private refrigerator separate from the others. Uh, medical problems such as severe diarrhea and high fevers struck half the community in February 1978. And according to the New York Times, uh, copious amounts of drugs such as Thorazine, sodium pentothal, uh, chloral hydrate, Demoral, and Valium. Oh, sorry, Demoral and Valium were administered to Jonestown residents with detailed records being kept up uh, of each person's drug regimens. Jonestown residents claimed the drugs were administered to control their behavior. So various forms of punishment were used against members considered to be serious dis uh, disciplinary problems. Methods including imprisonment and a 6 by 4 by 3 foot, so that's 1.8 by 1.2 by 0 0.09 meters. Uh, plywood box and forcing children to spend a night at the bottom of a well, sometimes upside down. And members who attempted to run away were drugged to the point of incapacitation. Armed guards patrolled the community day and night to enforce obedience to Jones. Uh, Children surrendered to communal care addressed Jones as dad and were only allowed to see their real parents briefly at night. Jones was called father or dad by the adults as well. Up to $65,000 in monthly welfare payments to Jonestown residents were appropriated by Jones, whose own wealth was estimated to be at least $26 million at this time. And that's, 
that's in fucking 70s money. You know what I mean? Uh, local Guyanese, including a police official, related stories about harsh beatings and a torture hole. It's a well into which Jones had misbehaving children thrown in the middle of the night. Uh, Jones had terrified the children by making them believe that there was a monster living at the bottom of the well, which was, in fact, Jones' henchman, who pulled and tugged the children's legs as they, dis- as they descended into the well. Uh, the mass suicides that would make Jonestown notorious were rehearsed during white nights in an affidavit. People's Temple defector Deborah Layton explains how these were rehearsed. So everyone, including the children, was told to line up. And as we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquor to drink. Sorry, not liquor, liquid. <laughs> liquor probably would have made this a little bit easier. Uh, we were told that the liquid contained poison and that we would die within 45 minutes. We all did as we were told, and when the time came when we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and that we had just been through a loyalty test. Think about that shit for two seconds, okay? We all know that the massacre happened. We all know that they did it, okay? And there's a lot of people who are like, well, fucking, maybe it's just the heat of the moment. They rehearsed this shit. Like, that's... Holy shit, like, you are in these people's heads. You are in their lives. Like, you... And and the way that he did this was capturing them emotionally, mentally, and not just that, but also getting them on, like, a, a holistic sense. Like, you know, they, they believed in him so much and his power to heal. And he, he, he's... I mean, like, we covered in the first episode. In the first episode, the man almost looked like a fucking saint. Like, he came out the gate swinging. He did, he did so much good. And I, I, it's hard for me to believe that it led up, that this is what it was all leading up to. I don't know where shit got wired, but nine times out of ten, it's because of heavy drug use. Like, most of these fucking uh, cult leaders, A, don't know where to go from what. And, and the crazy thing is, is that he's, he's still doing, I mean, almost, I don't want to say formal, He's still doing uh, almost traditional style religion. God, da, da, da. he's never once claimed to be God. There's, there's God, there's this, you know, da, da, da. and if you follow my teachings, you'll get closer to heaven. But he's not promising some sort of fucking spaceship. He's not promising you Xenu. He's not promising you fucking eternal whatever. I mean, he's, if you follow a lot of these other cults, they promised all kinds of crazy shit. And then when they missed their mark or what they promised didn't happen, then they start panicking and they start yes-anding themselves and they start making shit crazier. And then it leads to people castrating themselves in Mexico or fuck, and which is a true story. Um, and, and people eventually, you know, doing a mass suicide or killing themselves because of, they think that's the only way to reach the next level. This shit just seems like pure obedience. Um, so he warned us that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands. So leading on you know, into the investigation, so on Tuesday, November 14th of 1978, Congressman Leo Ryan, a Democrat from San Francisco, flew to Guyana, along with a team of 18 people consisting of government officials, media representatives, and members of the group Concerned Relatives of People's Temple members, which, I mean, that's straight to the point, right? So the group included Ryan, his legal advisor, Jackie Spear, Neville Anneborn, Representing Guyana's Ministry of Information was Richard Dwyer, Deputy Chief of Mission of the U.S. Embassy to Guyana at Georgetown, who some believe to have been a CIA agent. Uh, reporters Tim Reiterman, uh, San Francisco Herald Examiner, okay, uh, and Don Harris from NBC. Uh, Greg Robinson, Steve Sung, Bob Flick, Charles Krauss, Ron Javers, uh, Bob Brown, and Concerned Relatives Representatives Anthony uh, Katsaris. Jim Cobb and Carolyn Houston Boyd. 
Ryan and the others intended to investigate allegations that human rights were being violated daily at the People's Temple, that individuals were being held against their will, that individuals had their money and passports confiscated, that mass suicide rehearsals were being conducted, and that seven attempted defectors were killed. So from the time Ryan and the others arrived at midnight in Georgetown, the capital city of Guyana, before Wednesday the 15th, uh, there were signs that things would not run smoothly. So previously booked, uh, previously booked hotel rooms were occupied, and the group had to find other logics. In the days that followed, Jones lawyers in Georgetown, Mark Lane and Charles Gary, refused to allow Ryan's party to access to Jonestown. And during his stay at Georgetown, Ryan visited the temple headquarters at a large house called Lamaha Gardens. Uh, at a, rear, at a rear patio, Ryan spoke with Temple members Laura Johnson, Cole, and others who showed him around the house's first floor. Ryan asked to speak to Jones by radio, but Sharon Amos, the highest-ranking Temple member present, advised Ryan that his, uh, pre his mm, sorry, present visit was unscheduled. Members recalled Ryan as a likable man who had a bad cold. So, Ryan's Jonestown visit. We're going to get into this now. Now, remember, this is a congressman investigating, you know what I mean? Um... So by late morning on Friday, November 17th, Ryan informed Lane and Gary that he would leave for Jonestown at 2.30 p.m., regardless of Jones' schedule or willingness. Ryan's party did so at roughly that time, accompanied by Lane and Gary, and came to Port Kaituma Airstrip, 10 kilometers from the Jonestown, uh, some hours later. Only Ryan and three others were initially accepted into Jonestown, but the rest of Ryan's group were allowed in after sunset. It was later reported and verified, by the way, by audio tapes recovered by investigators that Jones had run rehearsals in, in how to receive Ryan's designate or delegation to convince them that everyone was happy and in good spirits. And if you listen to these recordings, they're singing songs, they're playing stuff. I mean, like, they sound like, you remember, uh, if you've ever seen Dude, Where's My Car? Bright and shiny. It's kind of like that. Uh, <laughs> so sad. Um, so on the night of Ryan's arrival, there was a reception and concert held for, Ryan, for the Ryan delegation. Temple members were carefully selected by Jones to accompany individual visitors around the compound. Some were angry and saw the congressman's visit as trouble brought in from outside, while many went on with their usual routines. Uh, two people's temple members, Vernon Gosney and Monica uh, Bagby, made the first move for defection that night. They saw their opportunity and said, fuck it, we're getting out of here. He won't do shit while the media is watching. Or so they thought. So Gosney passed a note to Ron Harris reading, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, please help us get out of Jonestown. That night, the Ryan delegation, Ryan Spear, Dwyer, and Anna Bourne, stayed in Jonestown. The entire press corps and the members of Concerned Relatives were told that they had to find other accommodations, and so they went to Port Kaituma and stayed out at a small cafe. Uh, in the early morning of November 18th, and more than a dozen temple members sensed danger enough to walk out of the colony toward Matthews Ridge in the opposite direction of the airstrip at Port Kaituma. These defectors included the five members of the Evans family and Leslie Wilson and her two sons, who were the family of Jonestown's head of security, Joe Wilson. Later, when the reporters and concerned relatives had arrived, Marceline Jones, wife of Jim Jones, gave a tour of the settlement for the visiting reporters. There was a dispute outside a small dormitory building where elderly black female temple member were living. Uh, the windows and doors were all shut, and Jones loyalists accused the press of being racist for trying <clears throat> to invade the privacy of the elderly women. 
The journalists replied that they wanted to know about the living conditions. Jim Jones woke late on the morning of November 18th, and the NBC crew, uh, crew handed him Vernon Gosney's note. Jones was angry and believed that those who wanted to leave the community would lie and destroy Jonestown. Jones and many other members of the People's Temple saw themselves as a family that had the right and duty to stay together. Then, two families stepped forward and asked to be escorted out of Jonestown by the Ryan delegation. They were the Parks and the Bogue families, along with Christopher O'Neill and Harold Cordell, who were partners of, uh, of women in the two families. So Cordell would lose 14 family members, ages 2 to 76, that evening during the poisonings. Uh, the Bogues would lose their daughter, Marilee, age 18, and Gosney would lose his son, Mark, age 5. Jones was angry. Even, even though other members and visitors told him it was actually a com compliment that out of over a thousand people, only a few dozen wished to leave. Jones then gave them permission to leave with some, with some money and their passports. So Jones also told them they would be welcome to come back at any time. That afternoon, there was a very long negotiation under a pavilion during which Jones was upset by news that Evans and Wilson families had defected on foot. While negotiations proceeded under the pavilion, some new emotional scenes developed between family members. So Al Simon, an, an Amerindian member of the People's Temple, uh, walked toward Ryan with two of his small children in his arms and asked to go back with them to the U.S., but his wife Bonnie was summoned on the loudspeaker by Joan's staff, and she loudly denounced her husband. Loudly denounced her husband. Another famous scene took place on camera between Maria uh, Katsaris a Jones staff member, and her brother Anthony. He pleaded with her to return to the U.S. and consult with her family, but she bitterly rejected his suggestion. Maria pulled off her gold necklace, threw it at her brother, and cursed him as the visitors and defectors were about to leave. Violence breaks out because more people were leaving than had been expected, and due to the limited seating available on the small Cessna aircraft Ryan had chartered back to Georgetown, Ryan planned on sending a group there and staying behind with the rest until another flight could be scheduled. Temple member Don Sly, nicknamed Uahar, Uhara, Ujara, anyway, anyway, acting under Jones' orders, attacked Ryan with a knife. This was one of a series of orders Jones gave that day, which had one or more of his loyalists taking drastic actions without any other loyalist knowing of Jones' instructions, uh, resulting in much confusion between Temple members. In fact, when Sly attacked Ryan, other loyal People's Temple members helped stop the attack. Although the congressman was not seriously hurt in the attack, he and Dwyer realized the visiting party and the defectors were in danger. Ryan's party and 16 ex-Temple members left Jonestown and reached the nearby Port Kaituma airstrip at 4.30 p.m., where they planned to use two planes, a six-passenger Cessna and a slightly larger twin Otter, to try to fly out of Georgetown or fly to Georgetown. Sorry, to Georgetown. Uh, shortly before the scheduled departure, Jones loyalist Larry Layton demanded to join the group. Several other defectors voiced their suspicions about his motives, but Ryan and Spiller allowed him to join. Uh, before the Cessna took off, Layton produced a gun he had hidden under his poncho and started shooting the passengers. Uh, he wounded Monica Bagby and Vernon Gosney, and he tried to kill Del Parks, who disarmed Layton. Uh, at about this time, a tractor appeared at the airstrip driven by members of Jones' armed guards, the Red Brigade. Uh, the tractor got within about 30 feet of the Otter, and then the Jones loyalists opened fire while circling the plane on foot and apparent, uh, apparently in military-style formation. At this time, Congressman Leo Ryan was shot dead along with four other journalists. A few seconds of the shooting 
Yeah, a few seconds of the sh shooting were captured on camera by NBC cameraman Bob Brown, whose camera kept rolling even as he was shot dead. Congressman Ryan, uh, news team members Brown, Robinson, and Harris, and 44-year-old Jonestown defector Patricia Parks were killed in the few minutes of shooting. Jackie Spire, Spear Spire, uh, was injured by five bullets. Steve Sung and Anthony uh, Katsaris also were badly wounded. The Cessna was able to take off and fly to Georgetown, leaving behind the gunfire-damaged Otter, whose pilot and co-pilot also flew into or flew out in the Cessna. Journalist Tim Raiderman, who had stayed at the airstrip, uh, photographed the aftermath of the violence. Dwyer assumed leadership at the scene, and at his recommendation, Layton was arrested by Guinea State Police. Dwyer was hit by one bullet in his buttock, but at <laughs> at the airstrip. So I didn't mean to laugh like a child right there, but it, it's, I mean, he got shot in the ass. Uh, it took several hours before the 10 wounded and others in their party gathered themselves together and spent the night in a cafe with the more seriously wounded in a small tent on the airfield. A Guyanese government plane came to evacuate the wounded that following morning. Five teenage members of the Parks and Bogue families with one boyfriend were told by defector Gerald Parks after the shooting to hide in the adjacent jungle until help arrived and their safety was assured. They went into the jungle but got lost for three days and nearly died until they were found by Guyanese soldiers. Many Guyanese soldiers and civilians were looking on from alongside the airstrip as the shooting transpired. None of them attempted to intervene, and none of them came forward later to offer witness testimony. To date, none of them have even been identified. So here we go. We're getting into the mass murders and suicide now. So let's think about the timeline. Ryan and the team gets there. A few things happen. People see that Americans just showed up. They want to defect. They're like, this is our chance to get out. This shit's getting crazy. He's already been torturing. He's been practicing suicides. They, some of them actually woke up and saw what was happening. It's no longer what they thought it was going to be. It is time to fucking dip. And when they attempt to dip, now they're getting shot at. Like, he is not wanting people to leave. Not just that, but really put this into perspective. Now, you're in South America. One congressman and a crew has already showed up. And now you've laid waste to them. They're fucking dead. If you think for one second that now the American military aren't going to come in and torch you down, especially since you are American, I mean, technically you're Americans, they have full right. And if Guyana just decides to extradite you, you're fucked, man. You got all those murders on your hands. So now what is it time to do? Well, it's time to practice, you know, perform what you practice, right? So now it's time to get into the mass murder and the suicides. Here we go. About 45 minutes after the Port Kaituma shootings, which is how long it took to travel the rough six-mile road back to Jonestown, the airstrip shooters arrived back in Jonestown, and one eyewitness, Tom Carter or Tim Carter, a Vietnam War veteran, recalled them having the thousand-yard stare of weary soldiers. The shooters numbered about nine, and their identities are not all certainly known, but most sources agree that Joe Wilson, Jones head of security, Thomas Kais Sr., and Albert Touche, were among them. Jim Jones, Jim Jones called a meeting under the pavilion as night fell. It was announced as another white night, the fake suicide, which had been rehearsed before. But this time, Dr. Lawrence Schacht, uh, Nurse and Annie Moore, and others mixed cyanide and Valium into a, a metal vat full of grape flavor ape. Before the murder-suicide got underway, Jones argued with two temple members who actively resisted his decision for the whole congregation to die. One was 60-year-old Christine Miller, who's repeatedly suggested alternative strategies such as taking all the children to Russia along with Jones himself. Another dissenter was almost certainly Jones's own wife, Marceline. 
Jones assured his followers that CIA-sponsored mercenaries or Guyanese soldiers would soon emerge from the jungle and slaughter all of them. Loyalists with crossbows and firearms formed a circle around the area where the poison was being injected into children's mouths with plastic syringes and distributed in paper cups. If you've never heard the audio of this part, he's talking the entire time and you hear people weeping and some people going along with it and he's saying kill your kids first and people start fucking doing it, killing their kids by the fucking dozens, man. Like, it is some depressing-ass shit. Uh, this is often suggested to be the reason so many adults continue toward their own deaths with little or no resistance because the kids are fucking gone. Um, Stephen uh, Jones, surviving son of Jim Jones, asserted afterward that to many it would have been impossible to carry on living after seeing so many children die. According to eyewitness Stanley Clayton, the families were then escorted from, their, from where the poison was at Sorry, where Poison Vat was located and told to lie down together along walkways and areas out of the close vision of the people who were still being dosed. Because anyone present who believed that this was just another rehearsal would not believe so any longer after seeing people convulsing and dying. The poison was extremely effective, causing death within about five minutes to everyone who drank it. Four people who were intended to be poisoned decided not to co uh, cooperate and survive. They were 76-year-old Hyacinth Thrash, who hid under her bed when nurses were going through her dormitory with cups of poison, 36-year-old Odell Rhodes, a Jonestown teacher and craftsman who hid, 25-year-old Stanley Clayton, who also hid, and 79-year-old Grover Davis, who was hard of hearing. And with that being said, she also missed the announcement on the loudspeaker to assemble, lay down in a ditch, and pretended to be dead. Uh, Thrash and Davis were recovered by Guyanese soldiers on Sunday morning. Rhodes and Clayton left for Port Kaituma. Five people were given assignments by Jones or his staff that did not call them to their desk. His two lawyers, Charles Gary and Mark Lane, who were not Temple members, were escorted to the East House, which was used to accommodate visitors for away, uh, far away from the pavilion. Tim Carter, who was 30, Mike Carter, who was 20, and Mike Prokes, 31, were given uh, luggage containing money and documents, which they were told to deliver to Guyana's Soviet embassy. Lawyers Gary and Lane walked through the jungle during the night and eventually made it to Port Kaituma. Uh, while in the jungle near the settlement, they heard cheering, then gunshots. This observation con concurs with the testimony of Clayton, who heard the same sounds as he was sneaking back into Jonestown to retrieve his passport and to snatch a bottle of Jones, uh, Jones's own cold beer. Uh, Clayton and Rhodes were not aware of each other's movements. Both looked for the home of one Guyanese family they knew, which was near Jonestown on the way to Port Kaituma. Only Clayton found the house in the dark while Rhodes continued on to Port Kaituma. Clayton had the Guyanese family, sorry, told the Guyanese family what just happened, but he was not taken seriously. Clayton then suggested that the people of Jonestown no longer needed their tools and equipment. The father of the Guyanese family then went to Jonestown as Clayton slept. He returned in the morning with a disturbed look on his face, according to Clayton. Evidently, Jones and his immediate staff, after having organized and supervised the White Knight, came together and killed themselves and each other with handguns after giving a final cheer. However, the only two people who were killed by gunfire were Jones and Annie Moore. It is unknown whether Jones shot himself or was shot by someone else, and Moore left a suicide note before shooting herself inside Jones' cabin. Recovery workers entering Jones' cabin found the door blocked by the body. Uh, as a means of escaping the slow death uh, endured by his followers, it is believed by his son, Stefan, that Jim Jones chose to be shot rather than or poisoned. Another non-suicide 
Other non-suicides appeared to have had the poisonous brew injected into them between the shoulder blades by unknown persons. Moore was one of only seven people out of 913 to have an autopsy performed on her at the uh, insistence of her family. Her sister, Rebecca Moore, who was not a People's Temple member, has since 1999 hosted a website about the disaster. Moore's note in part stated, I am at a point right now so embittered against the world I don't know why I'm writing this. Someone who finds it will believe I am crazy or believe in the barbed wire that does not exist in Jonestown. Another last note was left unsigned either by Richard Tropp or by Marceline Jones herself, Jones's wife. Uh, the Carter brothers and Mike Prokes were put into protective custody in Port Kaituma but released in Georgetown. Rhodes, Clayton, and the two lawyers were also brought to Georgetown. Uh, Larry Layton, who had open fire aboard the Cessna was extradited to the U.S. and put in prison. He is the only person ever to have been shed or held responsible for the event at Jonestown. He was paroled in 2002. There is no evidence indicating that mercenaries or Guinea soldiers or indeed anyone else were present in the jungle surrounding Jonestown on the evening of the mass suicide slash murders as Jones told his followers. So here we are in the aftermath. So early reports claimed that about 400 Temple members had been killed and the remainder had fled into the jungle. Well, this death count was revised over the next week until the final total was 909 total deaths. The sheer scale of the event, as well as Jones' socialist leanings, led some to suggest that the CIA involvement. However, in 1980, the House uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence investigated the Jonestown mass suicide and announced that there was no evidence of CIA involvement at Jonestown. Most government documents actually relating to Jonestown remain classified, but according to the various press reports, uh, surviving Temple members in the U.S. announced their fears of being targeted by a hit squad of Jonestown survivors. Similarly, in 1979, the Associated Press reported the claim of a U.S. congressional aide that there were 120 white brainwashed uh, assassins out from Jonestown awaiting the trigger word to pick up their hit. Uh, the legacy of Jonestown, Jonestown itself became Sorry, so the legacy of Jonestown. Here we go. Uh, Jonestown itself became a ghost town after 1978 after 1978, and was mostly destroyed by a fire in the mid-1980s, and after which the ruins were left to decay. So where's Jonestown at today? Okay, is this something you can go visit? Well, today there remains little to mark the site where one of the most notorious mass suicides in history occurred. The buildings and grounds were not taken over by local Guinea's police or people because of the social stigma associated with the murders and the suicides. So, yes, it was a mass suicide, but I'm on I'm on the side of I think it was a mass murder. He had these people so fucking brainwashed that over 900 people, not all of them willingly, but the mass majority willingly killed their kids, then killed them fucking selves. And all of it started from a place of good. They say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Well, that story is probably the perfect example of that shit. Um, but that's it, man. That's how Jones left his legacy. He went from selling monkeys and and, and, and fucking helping out the little people and, and standing up for civil rights when nobody else was in a terrible fucking place to even try to do it. Um, and just being an all-around decent human being. And then he just lost his shit in his older age and fucking... I mean, and there were signs when he was a kid that he might lose his shit anyway, but... He definitely lost his shit later on, and he, he got himself stuck between a rock and a hard place in a few situations, and I think, you know, that whole permanent solution to stop a temporary problem thing, but what was the temporary problem? For me, I think the temporary problem might have been the provisions 
I think that he got in way over his head. He did not know how to feed these people. He just, he lost, you know, he didn't know what to do. And unfortunately, to escape his problems and escape his stress, I believe he turned to heavy, heavy drug use. And it just turned him into a, I mean, a fucking maniac, you know, uh, to the point where he was willing to kill his kids and his wife. So if he's willing to kill his kids and his wife, he doesn't give a fuck about your kids and your wife. But you, at this point, are so indoctrinated, so brainwashed that you believe every fucking thing that he's saying, and you're ready to lay down and die. And they did. And, I mean, honestly, having them kill their kids first, that's that's true. What? Why do you need to stick around? You just killed off your offspring, man. Like, you're fucking done. There's, there's no coming back from that. But anyway, uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for continuing to download. I've, I've seen a lot. I mean, it's still getting a pretty decent amount of downloads. People are still listening. People are still telling their friends about it. Uh, I was on a episode of Rap Sheets recently with uh, the guys from Rap Sheets, LeVon, Donnie, uh, Jet. And uh, it was a very interesting conversation. The conversation on, on this episode was, uh, if the Illuminati exists, do you think that there would be a black person in the Illuminati? Is I mean, that was the whole premise. Now, I don't think the Illuminati exists. But that's neither here nor there. I my stance is yeah. Why wouldn't they? It is. I mean, a- African American culture, like um, specifically, you know, Black America, okay, is one of the most mimicked cultures around the world. Like music style, I mean everything. Like they're there. I th- I think that Black American culture is a very very influential style. And how how would you become so worldly influential if you if there was if there was some crazy cabal um if you don't have someone from that culture right i mean how do you sell it you know what i'm saying but it was it was a pretty interesting discussion there's a lot of funny shit said and everything else like that like and you know and i even made reference where they're like i don't know man they they, they were like you know i think i think it's just rich white people and i'm and and i made a joke and it's not a joke this is a true statement by the way this is honestly how some of us think but I made a joke that uh, I was like, man, you, you're giving us way too much fucking credit because w- white people think that it's lizard demons running the world. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? I guess everybody's got their, their different view of, uh, of the boogeyman, so to speak. But go check out that episode. It's actually a really fun episode. It's, it's pretty funny. Um, outside of that, uh, nothing else really going on. I'm going to be on a episode of Crime Shots here pretty soon with Joe Smallwood. And, and his co-host, um, they are a fairly new podcast on Age of Radio. They, uh, they cover mostly crimes that happen in Texas. So, and they're not these hour and a half or hour and 15, hour and 45 minute episodes like I do. They are very short, sweet, and to the point. Some episodes are 15 fucking minutes. They get straight to the point. Like, it's, it's cool that they're called Crime Shots. It's like a bullet next to a shot glass for their, for their symbol or their picture, rather. And uh, it, it is. It's like taking a quick shot. Boom, Texas crime. Bah, hit it real quick, get out of there. You know what I mean? Uh, they do a really good job. I listened to a lot of the, uh, a handful of their episodes. I was going to say a lot, but I don't want to lie to you. I've listened to a handful. And uh, they're, they're, they're good. They're pretty good. Um, it, it is short. I like my podcast to be long. But if you're looking for, like, quick little dopamine hits of something interesting, uh, check out Crime Shots. Check out Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Check out everything else that Age of Radio has to offer. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, everybody, for being so patient with me. Um, while I was on the hiatus. And now I am back, and I know I've said that multiple times. 
Uh, but starting uh, probably next episode, my brother-in-law Anthony is actually going to start doing the show with me. We've had you know we've had Fuego, we've had you know Rocio, we've had all the guys from Chiron. Um, be on an episode or three or nine, and uh, but but Anthony, my brother-in-law, wants to start uh, doing episodes with me, which is cool because I'll take a lot of research time off of my back, and and you'll be able to hear a different perspective instead of just me talking to you guys. So I think that'll be cool. But anyway, it's awesome. Uh, to be back, I'm so glad that you guys haven't given up on me and all that other sappy bullshit. But in the meantime, uh, thank you guys, you beautiful bastards, and stay metal, mofos. Deuces. <laughs>